0: Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled The Body of Evidence. Remember which ones to turn on and off. How's everybody doing? Beautiful Sabbath day. Beautiful season. Uh, Amazing messages I hope that you're finding in our music and and in Mark's first message. Just uh, an incredible time of year and and it's just the start of of another year of God's holy days. But you know what? The rest of the world thinks that as... um, Maybe a little strange, right? We have some strange practices. We, uh, we refrain from eating soft, white, fluffy bread, with all kinds of yummy innards for seven days. We refrain from anything with leaven, in fact. And we go around our house and our cars and crazily trying to get every last bit out. And I have an admission to make. On the way here to church, (laughs) as I climbed in my truck, I realized I hadn't vacuumed it. So nobody go near the white truck out there. It's full of sin. (sighs) No matter how hard we try, right? And that is just one of the profound lessons that we get out of this time is that no matter how hard we try and all the effort we put in, there's still something somewhere and we can't get it out. So we have these strange practices. And another one, another strange practice, is this obsession with the body of Jesus. It's a little Unusual, isn't it? When you think about it. We have a group of people that have based their faith on the destruction of one man, the tearing apart of his body, the burying it of it in the ground, and then the raising of it again to life. It is a little strange. And of all the religions in the world, it's stranger still by comparison we're concerned about what happens to this body we're concerned about how Jesus' body endured how it was whipped and beaten and broken for us of how it was nailed to a piece of wood like it was just nothing and yet as it was hung in the air as he lay dying, it was the holiest of sacrifice. And then, of course, were concerned about what the Romans did with his body. They took that spear and they thrust it in his side just to make sure that he was dead. And he was. Drained of all life. It completely at that moment for you and me. And then, of course, we're obsessed with somebody moved his body. Because we have the account of his followers and they, they go and they look for his body three days and three nights later. And it's gone. And through them we ask, where have you laid the Lord's body? Where have you laid his body? Please tell me so that I can go get it and take care of it. And then he says, Mary, we are concerned about what happens to his body. And then, as we talked about the other night, we eat his body. And we drink his blood. You know. That sounds strange. Doesn't it? And we talked about that. Of how strange that sounded. Especially to a group of people. Who had very strict requirements. On, on what sacrifices were. On what you can and cannot eat. And yet. We are. Rightly so. Obsessed eating the body, and drinking the blood of Christ. This is a strange obsession we have, but it's good, and it's right, and it's vital for every single one of us. And we should dig deep into that today and celebrate that during this time. You know, what's interesting as well is that these concepts is the first thing that Paul said he talked to the Corinthians. About, You know, there was many different things he could have preached to them on. He could have brought them the law of God, which is a good law. It helps them. It, it helps order their, our lives and helps us to keep out of trouble. He could have brought them that. He could have brought them the history of Israel and the prophecies of God's intervention in the world. And he could have brought him, them anything, really. But what he brings is Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was later seen by Cephas or Peter. And then the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James. And then by the apostles. And last of all, he was also seen by me as by one born out of due time. The first thing that he preached to the Corinthians was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the witness, right, and the good news, the good news that he was alive. And that witness carried around by Hundreds of people that saw Jesus resurrected. One of the most provable events in history. You know that. Factually, one of the most provable events in history. There are more records about that than there are famous great works that we take for granted. Out of, antiqu- out of antiquity. This happened. And he said, this happened according to the scriptures. He was buried for three days and three nights and was resurrected according to the scriptures. Now, I wonder, what did the Corinthians ask when they heard this? I mean, I'm sure there was a a lot of different reactions. But those that were interested, what did they ask? I bet you they asked, what scriptures? What scriptures are you talking about? Ah, well, let me show you. Let me tell you what scriptures. Scriptures like Psalm 22 that we read the other night. Verse 14 I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a partridge, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Or, as we read as well in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken to the grave. Nobody could declare his generation. And Paul would have also told them of how Jesus' body was taken down. As we we know, as I just recounted to you. And it was put in a rich man's tomb after being executed between two sinners. Right? We find that in Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore my heart was glad, <clears throat> rather I should say, verse in, in Isaiah, in verse 9, it said, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. What was they thinking? They were like, okay, now, when were these scr- scriptures written? A long, long time ago. A long time ago. Long before this man we know as Jesus came physically on the scene. And then, as I was going to turn to Psalm 16, verse 9, therefore my heart was glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor you will allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The resurrection. Not leaving Jesus in the grave. Not leaving him dead forever. But allowing him and bringing him into the resurrection. And then back again to Isaiah 53 and 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He is put into grief. But when you made his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He was dead and is now alive. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Christianity, this faith that we have, that, that Paul handed down to us, that, that all the others, the disciples, the apostles, the witnesses have communicated through us, to us, through the gospels, through the acts of the apostles, all of this has come down to us and it rests every single account every single bit of witness testimony that they gave to this body of evidence rests on this event. Without the death and the resurrection, what do we have? What do we have? We have nothing. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, that in spite of all of his teaching, in spite of everything that he had told them, And in spite of the accounts that they had heard from him and others, there were still some people going around saying, the dead do not rise. But there is no resurrection. In verse 12 he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He said it nicer than I would have. What's wrong with you? After everything that we've told you. Why would you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead. Then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen. Then what I'm doing right now. And what has been done for thousands of years. Is vain. And worthless. Our preaching is empty and your faith also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom they are saying he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we, we have hope in Christ only, then we are of all men most pitiful. That's the whole thing, isn't it? That's the whole thing. The whole shooting match, as they say. It's simply not possible to have our sins removed, to be saved from death. There's no, any, there's no real meaning to our faith if Jesus has not risen. If he has not risen, why are we here? Why were they there? They had a potluck? Is that it? And of course, we, we know there's a little bit of history. There's, there's Jews that had that belief already, right, before maybe... They were converted. But how could they have been converted? (laughs) Converted to what? The very principles of Christianity is that Jesus Christ was dead and rose from the dead. And you know, you think about that. You think about the risks that Paul took, the risks that the other disciples and apostles took. They gained nothing materially from going around the world, that region of the world, and saying Christ was dead and is now alive. They didn't gain anything by it. They were beaten. They were killed. As as we read in, in Hebrews, they were sawn asunder. There was no grand conspiracy to make money off some kind of prosperity gospel, was there? They put their life on the line for this account, for this body of evidence that they were presenting to us. Why would they choose to live a Christian life if the dead do not rise, if Jesus was not risen? There would be no point for that. Now, some may say, well, even if we're wrong and the dead don't rise... I'd still rather be a Christian because that's the best way to live and it it helps me be a good person, a moral person. I appreciate the sentiment, but I have to disagree. This notion, this idea that, well, if we're wrong, Christianity just helps us be good, well, then just go be a Buddhist, right? There are plenty of religions that just are about just being better. And in fact, you probably know an atheist or two that are kind and generous. Right? It's not about that. It is not about just being good. If Christianity is is only about being good, a good person, then that's also futile. Why? Because at the center of it is a lie. Because if Christ is not risen, then we believe a lie and we tell people lies. How is that being a good person? Without Christ Jesus living in us, we cannot be good. He has died. He has offered up his body for our redemption. But that's only true if he's risen from the dead. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis, and I, I don't remember the quote exactly, but he said that, Christianity is not about becoming a good person or living a moral life. That's part of it. But that's not the purpose. Christianity is about becoming a new type of being altogether. A new type of being. A being like Jesus Christ. And to deny this central principle is denying God and simply live a lie. How could we hope to be a good person? A good person. By living a lie. Paul further reinforces it. When he describes the process. He says. In verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After those who are Christ. At his coming. And then comes the end. Way down the road for him. Maybe hopefully not too far. Down the road for us. right? But way down the road comes this end. When he delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I'm ready for that. He's with me. Let the last enemy be destroyed that is death. And this is something we must keep in mind. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead for himself. Just so that he could resurrect all of those who believe in him. With his resurrection, everything changed. With his resurrection, he began a process that when it is done, will bring about the end of death. The death of death. What does that look like? We've never known that, have we? We have never known that. The last enemy will be destroyed. And that it is death. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, it shows this picture. It's after Jesus has returned to the earth. It's after the millennium. After he has reigned for a thousand years. And right before the new heavens and the new earth are formed, at the last and final step of what Jesus started on Calvary's hill when he started that work he then finishes it he says in verse 14 and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death ready for that to happen so very much death will be destroyed in fact it already is destroyed just doesn't know it yet. It already is destroyed. Jesus already did the hard work, didn't he? You know, there's a line in that song that we, that we sung. It says, and he's resting as he rises. Because he's done. He's overcome. And so as he's rising in his resurrection, he's claiming the bride that he is won. And he is waiting. He's waiting with the nod. Go. Let's finish the rest of it. Death and the grave will be destroyed. In fact, it's already destroyed. Paul says it this way in Second, uh, second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What is that testimony? It is that Jesus died And that three days and three nights later that he was resurrected. That's the testimony. He said, do not be ashamed of that. Nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. For the good news according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to works. But according to his own purpose and grace. Which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began that blows the mind before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our savior jesus christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel death is already dead it just doesn't know it yet jesus has done the hard work and as i said earlier he's waiting to come back but all of this is only made possible if Jesus died and rose again. On that everything hangs. Without this, a faith is vain. And yet, it is possible, isn't it, that we confess this with our mouth? That we even agree with it in our mind. And yeah, I'm, I'm convinced Jesus lived and, and, was, and was crucified and rose three days and three nights later. It's possible to, do, to believe all of that and then to live our life like it never happened. To actually not live a life of belief in what we profess with our mouth. Now, you might be asking, what, I, what do I mean? Well, we can believe, can't we, that Jesus died, that he rose again, that he is seated on high, right? But is that enough? Is that all we have to do? Remember, remember what James said about believing God? He said in James chapter 2 and verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and So, we believe that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried in the tomb, and three days and three nights later, he was resurrected. Good. The devils believe that too. You know why? Because they were there. They were there. So just believing in some facts isn't enough. There's something more. There's something else that has to happen. There's something that we have to do in our life to put this knowledge and this knowledge of the body of evidence presented to us into action and into practicing belief. What am I talking about? Well, we find it in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14 says, so this day shall be to you in a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. And your trucks, man. <laughs> For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day... There shall be a holy convocation on the seventh day. There shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them. But excuse me, but that which everyone must eat, that only that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance everlasting ordinance, something that Lucille was reminding me of uh, last night, that this is an everlasting, permanent ordinance that should be practiced by the people of God. Last night also, uh, Bob and I were talking, and uh, he'd asked me if I would be throwing out any bread today. You guys remember, I mean, some of you may have not been there, but at the Feast of Tabernacles in Branson, uh, 2014, I threw out bread as part of my message. And I think Bob's been a little hungry since, so he wants, he wants some more bread. So I'm going to throw out some bread. <laughs> now, this is a little harder than the bread I threw out last time. Um, but I think I can get some good distance on these wafers, don't you? <laughs> uh, so, are you ready? That's one of the old soft breads I had around. My wife said, technically, that's leavened, you know. It's, it's foam. It's just foam. And I'm sorry, I only have one for Bob but I'm hoping, because I cast it on the waters, that it might return to me. Right? No, no, no. (laughs) So, Doyle's probably glad I didn't make a mess with all the wafers. It's going to be some work to tidy up. But this week, we're engaging in another peculiar exercise, aren't we? Of eating the, the very hard bread... Right here. Hard bread. It's not, you know, I I was was eating a piece this morning, trying to have a conversation, and crumbs are falling down, hanging in the beard. Don't put lemon curd on them. Then it sticks to the beard. (laughs) It's not a good idea. So we're, we're doing this practice. It's a strange practice. But we get so much from it, don't we? when we think about what we're doing, and we get seven days to remind ourselves of something we should be doing for the rest of our lives. Right? For the rest of our lives. That unleavened bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul talks about unleavened bread. talks about the church in Corinth being unleavened mostly. And it, he gives us a further insight into why we should continue to do this. He says, your glorying is not good. As he was talking about how they were glorifying in the fact that they were so tolerant in the Corinthian church that they were putting up with brethren sinning. And he said, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Which feast? The feast of unleavened bread. Right? Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, of clarity, of purity and truth. Now, apart from this being strong evidence that the the early church practiced the holy day, which we know that they did. There's something else in here. There's a critical point for us to take note of. That we cannot just go through the motions. Right? Going through the motions doesn't do anything. The, the Corinthian church were unleavened. They were going through the motions. And they had sin in their congregation. Things that they had not dealt with. Going through the motion, just following the day and enjoying the potlucks as good as they are, is not enough. If Christ is our Passover, we cannot live any longer as slaves to sin. Can we? Can we do that? No. We are not in chains and bonds to sin anymore. Jesus Christ has set us free. We should not live as others do, having no hope. No hope of the resurrection. We have the hope, because they know that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we cannot hope to attain that resurrection unless we do something. Unless we eat the unleavened bread of sincerity, which means like clarity, purity, clean of sincerity and truth. Truth, which we read the other night in John chapter 17, verse 17, when Jesus said in his prayer for us, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. My word is truth, said Jesus, quoting from the Psalms. And it's poetic. It's poetic in the extreme. Because he was the word. He was the way, the truth, and the life. So, what am I trying to get at? What am I getting to here? Well, we must believe with all of our heart and out our mind. That Jesus Christ. That he was crucified. That he was resurrected. Three days and three nights later. That he lives with us now. Within us. Through the spirit. We have to believe those things. But not just in the mind. Not just confessing those things. We have to believe it in life. In how we conduct our life. So we're about to participate in this week-long memorial of, of eating unleavened bread. Not because our ancestors were rescued from, from Egypt. I mean, maybe some of us had ancestors that were in the exodus. I don't know if I had any. That's not why we do it, is it? That's not why we do it. We celebrate it because we have been saved and released from our own captivity, in our own sins, in our own life. But even even the eating of this unleavened bread does us no good unless we get the lesson from the eating. What's the lesson behind all of this? In John 6, we find the passage again where Jesus declares to the people that he was the bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. and He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. It's so encouraging, isn't it? That if we go to him, he will not cast us out. You know, at Passover, we can easily go down the road of of harsh criticism of ourselves, evaluating ourselves from a year ago and not being satisfied with our growth. Still struggling with the same struggles and sins. And Jesus said, come to me. I will not cast you out. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work with you for as long as it takes. For I have come down... From heaven. Not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the father who sent me. That of all he has given me. I should lose nothing. His responsibility. If we have been given to Christ Jesus by the father. Whose responsibility is it? It's his. That he not lose us. That of all that he has given me. I should lose nothing. But should raise it up on the last day and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day the Jews then complained about him and said I am the bread which because he said I am the bread which comes down from heaven and they said is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how is it then he says that I've come down from heaven And Jesus, therefore, answered and said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And then the Jews, again, they quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I kind of feel like the Jews were a bunch of engineers, you know? Very literal. Maybe a bunch of computer guys, too. It's either on or it's off. Right? It's very literal. How can, you're going to pluck off a finger and we're going to snack on this? Very, just, And maybe, maybe they were blinded. Maybe they weren't. Those particular Jews being drawn to, to Jesus. How can we eat his body and drink his blood? They couldn't see past the physical. They could not see past the physical things in life. Very materialistic. They believed in what they could see, what they could taste, what they could feel. They believed in what they could observe, practice and do believed in just following a set of rules, and that'll get us there. But should we be so quick to judge? Should we judge them that harshly? Are we really like them? Do we always look on the spiritual? Or can we get tunnel vision and just be focusing on the practical, physical things that we have to do. Which is it? Do we focus on observing the holy days and the Sabbath, observing perfectly, keeping unleavened bread and remembering to vacuum your truck and all of that? Do it perfectly. Or do we dig deeper into what's behind that But all of these things were supposed to be an exercise to get us to think beyond the practice and the reality that is in Christ Jesus. You know, even the solemn Passover, done year after year after year, can just become a ritual. You know, and I kind of feel that way, that it it would even be easier in Sunday church traditions, right, that do it every other week or every week. Or Catholic communion, and they have bread and wine every week. That once a year makes it more special to me. But even then, 40, 50 years of observing, is it just a practice? Or we dig deeper behind the practice? Jesus continues, he says, he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Their fathers were dead. All that unleavened bread keeping didn't keep them alive, did it? And they didn't do it terribly well, as we know. But that didn't keep them alive. I suppose the first time that the people heard this kind of preaching, it was hard. Weird. Unusual. Cannibalism. Now, deeper. Go deeper. Think more deeply about what he is saying. How do we drink his blood? How do we eat his flesh? And it's too simple to just say, study his word. We'll get into that. But it's too simple. It's applying his word, isn't it? Because the idea that Jesus is saying to us here is, if you drink my blood and you eat my flesh, you will never be the same. You will not go back to the way you lived before. You will be completely changed like the lives of these disciples that we see. They, they couldn't go anywhere else. They couldn't do anything else but follow Jesus to their own death. Didn't matter what happened. They became fanatics. And that's what Christ is calling us to be. It's not an easy thing. And maybe there's some of us here that will never completely commit to that. Maybe we won't. It's not an easy thing. But we all should look at our life and ask ourselves, are we willing to continue deeper in that commitment to eat more of his body and drink more of his blood? Verse 59, he says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. It's not easy. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are the life. He's trying to explain it to them. The body and the blood is the words, the spirit of Christ Jesus that we put into our lives, and we allow to feed and nourish the new creature. And that new creature needs to be getting bigger and bigger to the point it's ready to burst out of this old carcass. We need to feed on Jesus Christ. And this is what he really meant. When we eat the unleavened bread and drink his life blood. That we put our, his words, his spirit into action. In radical ways in our life. Jesus says... The words that I speak to you are spirit. These are the spiritual words. These are the characteristics of Jesus himself. These are the words that gives us life. We can eat all the unleavened bread we want. We can eat till we choke on it. Which is almost what I did last night with all of Lucille's unleavened bread. Because it's very good. But that will not do what the lesson of unleavened bread trying to get us to understand spiritual principles to work in our lives that changes our lives turning back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35 Paul puts it this way he says but some will say how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come foolish one what you sow is not made alive unless it dies we need to die, don't we? We need to die. We don't want to die, but we need to die. The deeds of the flesh, as Paul said, they need to die too. He said, mortify the deeds of the flesh. There's lots of ways in which we need to die. We need to die to Christ. The, the characteristics and the failures of who we are we need to stay dead. And the goodness of the new creature that Christ is bringing in us to life. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. and There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one. And the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun. Another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars. But one differs from glory. And glory. And so also. Is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised. In corruption. It is sown in dishonor. And it is raised in glory. You know, I, again, quoting C.S. Lewis, I love the line that he has in Mere Christianity when he says that when, when we are raised, when we reach this point, we will be drenched in joy. Drenched in joy. Drenched in that glory of that new resurrection. Sown in weakness. Raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. And that's interesting too, isn't it? That we we have these physical practices that we follow. These days of unleavened bread. That's just the first thing. The next thing is the spiritual. That we must take in each day. The spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord of heaven. As was the man of dust, also are those who are made of dust. And it is the heavenly man. And as, it, uh, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Think about that moment of resurrection and the silence of the tomb. Think about that. as the life returned to Jesus' body, as that body was changed, and I can't tell you exactly how it's changed, but I know it was changed, and it became eternal. it became no longer subject to death. That moment, Going to live forever again. Each one of us can experience that. That's out ahead for each one of us. Now, this I say, brethren the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal it must put on immortality and then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your sting O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The, st- the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and moveable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your struggle, your endurance, in this Christian life is not vain.